As you know, we've been going through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. Um, I told you that I was committed to doing what's called expository preaching. That's where we take up a book of the Bible, uh, read a passage at a time, and just try to find out, expose, expository preaching, expose what it is that God is saying to us uh, from that passage. And so this morning we come to a passage where Paul uh, has just laid out an amazing picture, a behind-the-scenes look at God's perfect plan. And he, he told us to praise God for this perfect plan. This plan that started before the foundations of the world, that was accomplished in His Son, and that is sealed by His Holy Spirit. This grand plan that God had to unite all things, not just humans, but all of the cosmos, all of creation, uh, put it under Christ's feet. And we, as human beings, we're swept up in this grand plan that God has for the cosmos. And what does Paul do right after he has given us this beautiful picture of this grand plan that God has? He prays. He prays for the Ephesians. He prays that they would know and understand their role in this grand plan. This, this, this grand plan is so great, so grand uh, in scale that it might not be easy for us to grasp really what our role is in that and how to understand it. So that's what Paul does in this moment. He prays for us. So let's go ahead and read this passage. We're going to read this prayer uh, that Paul has. And then we're going to dig through this, go through it, and find out what it is that Paul prays that we would know. So let's pray. Or sorry, let's read, not pray. Let's read. Uh, Let's read a prayer. How about that? So this is what it says in Ephesians, book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 15, starting in verse 15. It says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is his immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul starts off this prayer telling you why he's praying for them. He's, he's, he says, for this reason, I think he's pointing back to that grand plan that, that God had, that he had laid out, this grand plan. For this reason, and also because he had heard of their faith. He had heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for all the saints. For that reason, he never stops praying for them. He, never, he says, I never cease to give thanks for you remembering in my prayers. Notice who he's praying this prayer for. He's praying this for the Ephesians. These are people, as far as we can tell, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are folks who have put their faith in Jesus. We know that Paul spent time in Ephesus from the book of Acts. Um, So there's a church there, an established church, people who are trusting in Jesus. And so he prays this prayer about knowing God for believers. 
I think that should give us some insight in how important it is for us to pray for ourselves that we would know God and to pray for other people that they would know God. And not not just people, not just lost people that we should pray for. We need to pray for ourselves. This is a prayer for believers, that these believers would understand their salvation. Not for unbelievers to know God. That's a great prayer to pray, and we should pray that. As a matter of fact, we pray those things every Wednesday morning at our prayer meeting. We, we pick a, a people group from across the world who is unreached, and we pray for them every Wednesday. So that's what we should do. But this prayer specifically is for folks who are already trusting in Jesus. Already trusting in Jesus. And he prays these three things. He's going to pray that they would know their salvation in Christ, that they would know their salvation in Christ. Notice when he prays um, in, in verse, um, verse 18, he says that they would have their eyes of their hearts enlightened or that their eyes would be opened, that they would know the hope of his calling. So as you know your salvation, as you get to understand what it is, what the blessing is that you have in Christ, he calls us to know the hope of our calling. When God calls us, We are drawn to him. And when he calls us, he gives us something. He gives us a hope. And when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not talking about a wish, which is what we use it for. Like for me, I I hope it's 65 degrees tomorrow. Probably not going to get that wish, right? But that's my hope. That's my my wish. Uh, One commentator said, hope in the Bible is not like a child wishing for a puppy at Christmas. Um, for example, if that was my kids wishing for that, their hopes would be shattered because we're not having puppies, right? So hoping in the Bible is not just wishing. It's an assurance of what is to come. It's an assurance and a confidence in what is coming. And what are we as Christians hoping in? Well, we are hoping in the future return of Christ, his righting of all wrongs and our eternity with him. We're looking forward to Christ returning and fixing this broken world to where there's things, no more things like hurricanes. We don't have to pray for those things anymore. And that we would spend eternity with him. That's a hope that we have. And this kind of hope, this assurance of what's coming, does something to us. When we understand this hope that we have in Christ of what's coming, this kind of hope shifts our focus from this life to the next life. Shifts our focus from this life to the next life. This kind of hope allows us to flee from the riches of this life, to not be caught up in in the game of, of building up riches and a name for yourself. This kind of hope lets us see that life is short no matter how long we live it. And this hope enables purity. This hope enables us to overcome sin. It allows us to say no to sin in this moment because we know it's not worth what we receive from Christ in the future because of that kind of hope. It allows us to say no to the temporary things because we have everlasting things coming. It allows us to say no to the temporary because we know that everlasting is coming. That's the kind of hope that when we are called to God, we receive. We receive that kind of hope. But also, he prays that we would know not just the hope that we have from his calling, but the riches of his inheritance in you. The riches of his inheritance in you. The phrase that's used here is God's inheritance in the saints. It doesn't say the saints' inheritance in God, which we mentioned last week. Um, talks about us having obtained an inheritance or we have an inheritance. 
That was mentioned last week, but this week he's, he's using the, the language of God having an inheritance in us. The inheritance here is God's inheritance. He sees you as his inheritance. Let that sink in. God sees you as his glorious inheritance. He says that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Does that change the way you feel about yourself at all? I hope it does. I hope that that establishes some self-worth in you, that God sees you as his inheritance that he has worked for uh, throughout time and accomplished. You are his inheritance. So we live in a world that radically confuses us when it comes to self-worth and understanding our value. This world is really confusing. For example, think about this. When you get on social media, the first post you see might be something that talks about uh, the importance of um, self-love and self-care and how you should practice affirming statements and things like that about how, how you're worthy, valuable, and all that stuff. But then, what does that social media platform go on to do? It provides you hundreds of opportunities to compare yourself to other people in the next post down. right? That's what that social media platform does. It says, hey... You, you should be worthy of everything. Now look at all these people that you don't add up to. Look, here's a woman who's prettier than you. Here's a man who just bought his second new truck in five years. Look, here's a mom who has kids that actually obey her. Here's a house that's bigger than yours. Here's a house that's cleaner than yours. All of these things it presents to you and more of just ways for you to compare yourself to other people. And how are you supposed to understand your self-worth and value if you derive that from how you compare to other people. How are you supposed to love yourself when you compare yourself to everyone else? You're not designed to get your self-worth that way. That's not the way your tank is supposed to be filled. That's not where you're supposed to find your worth. You're supposed to find it in the fact that you have been created by God. You're supposed to find your self-worth in his evaluation of you and what he has spoken of you. And in this passage, it says that we are his inheritance. This truth is even greater than you can realize when you realize that this view that God has of you cannot be lost by you. You can't do something to change God's estimation of you. You can't make him love you less. And as a matter of fact, you can't make him love you more. God loves you the most that he can. And his love for you is unchanging. And he sees you. As his inheritance. And remember, this inheritance is not based on what you've done. When we look back and review uh, last week's sermon and think through verses 3 through 14, it says that he chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined to adopt you. He paid the blood price to redeem you. And he sealed you with the promised Holy Spirit as a down payment when you believe. Now, what did you do in all of that? You're pretty passive in all of that. He chose you. He redeemed you. He sealed you. And so all of that action that God has taken is not based on what you've done. Sure, that verse does say we're sealed the moment we believe. You believe, but we're going to see next week in chapter 2, the belief that you have, the faith that you have, is actually a gift that God has given you as well. You cannot lose this love that God has set on you. He sees you as his inheritance. And you can't lose that status. Your beauty is going to fade. Your money is going to be spent. You're going to lose your patience and be a jerk sometimes. You're going to fail at a lot of things. But those who are in Christ will forever be seen by him as his inheritance, what he has worked for and what he receives. 
a glorious inheritance, and nothing can take that inheritance away from him. So I pray that you would know not only the hope that he's calling you to, but also the glorious riches of his inheritance in you. And then finally, his greatness and power toward you. His greatness, the greatness of his power toward you. When God blessed us with salvation, it was through a mighty demonstration of his power. And this power is what he used to save us, but this power is also what he gives to us. We have access to it as we share in Christ. As we're united with Christ, the power that was used in Christ's life is also what's used in your life. Paul says this, this power is immeasurably great. You can't not describe it. You can't fathom it. Our minds can't comprehend it. Yet, he goes on to try to describe it and try to help us understand it. Um, and he talks about all of this power that was worked in Christ. And he gives us a list of these things. And this same power that he's about to describe is what's given to us. So we need to know our Savior Know our Savior. So first, we need to know our salvation. And second, we need to know our Savior. This Savior that we have, when God worked power in him, was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead, this passage says. The resurrection is the miracle in which Christianity hinges on. Paul says if, if the resurrection is not true, then everything else falls apart. It is the miracle that Christianity hinges on. One writer said that if the death of Christ is God's greatest display of his love, then the resurrection of Christ is the greatest display of his power. The greatest power in the universe displayed in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And this death-beating, life-giving, world-changing power that was used to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that is at work in you. It's the same power God uses in you. Charles Spurgeon described this power like this. He says, the very same power which raised Christ is waiting to raise the drunkard from his drunkenness, to raise the thief from his dishonesty, to raise the Pharisee from his self-righteousness, and to raise the Sadducee from his unbelief. I want to be careful because I don't want to preach next week's sermon, but you were dead in your transgressions and sins until God came along and raised you from the dead. That death not being that you were physically dead, that you were spiritually dead, lost in your sins. And if the power of God can raise Christ from the dead, he can raise you out of your sin and give you overcoming power, power to overcome the sin in your life. Some of you might be sitting in here and you've been sitting with a sin in your life that has been in your life for years that you've fought to get away from. You've, you've confessed it to other believers. You've, you've, you've prayed that God would take it away from you. Know that the power that raised Christ from the dead works in you that you might overcome the sin in your life. That cannot hold you down. If the grave can't hold Jesus down, your sin cannot hold you down because it's the same power that was worked in you. Make sure you come back to hear all that again next week, all right? So this power gives us the ability to overcome all the sinful shortcomings in our life. And not only did God raise him from the dead, he also seated Christ in the heavens. This one who was raised is now seated at the right hand of God. And this is a place of power, the place of power in the universe. It's actually the very throne on which Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, sat before he took on flesh and became like us. And this is the throne that displays power over everything. It's over every power. As it says here, every rule and authority and power dominion over all things. Usually when Paul uses that kind of language, he's not just talking about earthly powers, which is true. There's no nation, no kingdom on earth whose borders are closed to the Lord. No, no, no country that's sovereign over him. 
That applies to earthly powers, but Paul, when he uses this language, usually is speaking of spiritual powers, um, Satan's rule over the earth, um, his dominion. Not even the spirits have power over him. This is not a religion like you might find in the rest of the world that's like a yin and a yang. There's the light and the dark. There, there, there's, this is not an equal playing ground. We don't need to worry about who's going to win the game. God's going to win the game. He is the ultimate power. And all these other powers are subservient to him. There's no spiritual force that he doesn't conquer. There's no officer title out there that can veto what Christ says about us or in this world. There's not a moment where Jesus's power is going to fade. There's not a moment when his presidency ends and someone else's begins. It doesn't stop. This is the Jesus who's been seated at the right hand of God and is over all things. Every power, every dominion, every name that is named, Christ's title is higher than theirs. He's seated in the heavens and the Lord also subjected all things to his feet. Put all things under his feet. He rules all things. Not a single thing is outside of the rule of Christ. Not one thing. A leaf does not fall in the middle of the rainforest without God's bidding. Like nothing is outside of his reign. Everything is subjected to him and is under his feet. He's ruling over everything. And that also includes the church. Get the point that Paul's making. He's saying everything, every ruler, power, dominion, everything is under his feet. All, um, every, um, every name that is named, he's above that. In every age, not only in this age that we exist in, but also in the one to come at all times. Everything's under his rule, even the church. Even the church. That's why he said he appointed him as head over all things to the church. To the church. Sometimes we get confused about the leaders of a church, right? Uh, we have a Wednesday night ministry, and I'm, I ride the bus with a lot of kids. And I was riding, I was riding with one of the students one time, and I was talking to him. He's a second grader, so he's, he's got some uh, innocence to him. And he asked me, he was asking me about my, about my job. I often get asked, like, what else do you do? Or, like, what's your real job? Things like that. Um, so he's asking me stuff like that. And he finally says, who, who owns the church? He said, who owns the church? And I obviously, with my seminary degree, said, Jesus does, right? That's obvious answer, right? We should know that. Jesus does. But in this innocent question that he asked, we see the common trap that humans fall into. He wasn't really thinking about Jesus owning the church. He expected me to say somebody's name that he had met, that he had seen with his eyes. Maybe he was expecting for me to say my name. Oh, actually, I own the church as the pastor. But nothing could be further from the truth. Me, nor any pastor in the past, or any pastor that comes after me, nor any member that's sitting in the seats now, or any member in the past, is the ruler of this church. No one owns this place. This place, this group of people, this organization that is the church, Lord willing, will exist after all of us are gone. And all these seats are going to be filled with people who we don't even know their names yet. This church does not belong to any of us. It belongs to Christ. He is the head of the church. Everything in all creation is subject to, to under, subjected under Christ's feet, even the church. We might even say especially the church. So Paul, in his prayer, he's prayed that we would know our salvation, understand the hope and all that things that we've called to. Then he gives us a picture of the Savior, that we would understand the Savior. Now, I think he helps us understand our status. 
What does it mean that we're the church? What status do we have now as the church? We need to think about that, about what, we re- what we've received as we've received the salvation. Because our salvation, when it's provided to us in Christ, we are considered by God to be the body of Christ and the fullness of him. The body and the fullness. As you read these, this last verse, verse 23, it talks about the church being his body. We are his body in the sense that we are closely connected to Christ. He identifies himself with us. When he meets Paul on the road to Damascus, remember Paul was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus shows up in a bright shining light, knocks Paul off his horse. And, Paul, or, and Jesus says to Paul, who had been killing the church, he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, why are you persecuting me? Like when, when the church is persecuted, Jesus takes offense to it because, hey, if you mess with them, you mess with me. That's what he's saying. And when he identifies himself with us, we are closely connected to him. We are his body, his flesh and blood on this earth now. What a privilege. I mean, what an honor that we often forget. What a privilege it is that we are considered his body, his body. And it describes us as his fullness. We are the fullness of of him who fills all in all. I think this is referring to the idea of the temple. Think of the temple in the Old Testament as the, the priests would do their work and the, spirit, the, the, the presence of God would come and fill that temple. That Shekinah glory would come and fill the temple. I think that's the idea of what Paul's saying. He, we are that fullness of God. We are that presence of God in the world. Just like God's presence would come and fill the temple, God fills us that we might fill the earth, right? That we might be a reflection of his presence. We're the fullness of, impre- of his presence. And again, what a privilege that is, that we would be the presence of God. But also, this is not just a privilege that we have. It's a responsibility that we have. If God's presence is with us in such a way that we are his fullness, the fullness of his presence, shouldn't we look like him? Shouldn't we reflect his image? Shouldn't we represent him? When people are around us, shouldn't they be able to say, I've experienced the presence of God when I've been around Christians. I, f- I feel his, his love, his forgiveness, his holiness, his purity, his desire for truth. That should be in us. We should represent that. And what about the relationship that we have as a body to the head? What kind of relationship is that? Well, the body is designed to move at the very thought that the, the, the head has, right? At the thought of something, that the, the hand moves. As the brain thinks, the body moves. And if it doesn't, if that doesn't happen, then there's something wrong with the connection, right? We, we think there's something, something has happened in the nerves to where that, that body's not working. We say that, that that body is paralyzed because it won't listen to the head. It's unable to listen to the head. So how do we, as a church... Guard against being a paralyzed body, being a church that doesn't do what Christ wants us to do, that doesn't live how he would have us live. That's not reaching the people around us or that's not displaying his character. How is it that we can guard against that? Well, I think we need to do the very thing that Paul has done. We need to do the thing that Paul has done in this passage. And that's pray. That's pray. Paul, after again, and remember, he described this grand, perfect plan that God had created in eternity past. 
And after that, he prayed that we would understand it. You know, these Ephesians, um, later on uh, in the book of Revelation, they're referred to. uh, uh, Of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, it's mentioned, the Ephesians are mentioned. Um, I don't know exactly how long it would have been from the people Paul was writing to and who John was writing about. Um, The power of God can can cause John to write about something way in the future too, right? Um, I don't know exactly the time, but he says of the Ephesians, I have one thing against you and you've lost your first love. And we can lose our our love for the Lord. We lose our love for the Lord. Um, And that's why I think it's important for us to take a passage like this that Paul gives. This is a gift that we have of a prayer that God gave to Paul that he might pray for other people. Like God has given you the prayer that you can pray that you might deepen your knowledge of God. And so with that being said, I forgot to mention this to you, Lord, but could you come up here and just play a little softly? And we're going to pray this prayer. I'm going to lead you guys through this prayer. We're going to take this passage that Paul has given us to pray, and we are going to pray it. And that's what I encourage you to do with all passages that you, that you read in the Bible. As you read through them, pray through them. Take those words and turn them around and give them back to God. As we look through this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have Lori play, and as she plays softly, I'm going to just say some lines. And I want you to say these in your heart, and then I'm going to give you some time to reflect on these lines of prayer. But we're just going to pray this as a congregation as we close our, this sermon this morning, that you might be able to take this passage about knowing God and pray it for yourself, and that you can go back in here and pray these things for other people as well. So let's go to the Lord and pray. I want you to start off saying this. Father of glory, give me a spirit of wisdom and knowledge of you. Next, pray this. Open my spiritual eyes so I can know your salvation. Next, help me to live like someone who has a hope for the future. Next, allow me to know that I am your inheritance. Next, help me to know the power that is is at work in me. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that seated him in the heavenlies. The same power that placed all things under his feet. And that appointed him head over the church. And finally, Father, help us to be the body of Christ in the fullness of your presence.